Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Hi, everyone. My name's Ray. I'm here to give you the Bible reading for this morning. And uh, today we're starting a series on the book of Isaiah. So if you could turn to Isaiah, around the middle of the Bible, uh, one of the first uh, minor prophets. A few chap- books after Psalms, if you can find that. So we're going to go for Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O, o heavens, listen, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burn with fire. Your fields are stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste, as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and of the fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of your, my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense, incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your skins, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She, was once, she, was, she once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. 
but now murderers. The silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will get my relief from my foes and avenge myself from my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with righteous, with justice, her penitent, ones, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and the work a spark. Both will be burned with no one to quench the fire. This is the word of the Lord. I think I figured out why so often our Christian lives are dry and joyless and, quite frankly, a burden. Uh, I don't know if some of you feel like that. I think I figured out a big part of the answer, and it's this. It's because our view of God is far too small. Our view of God is far too small. We know things about God. We can list off a list of doctrines and beliefs about God even. We know things about the Bible, but when it comes to the daily grind of work or going to study for our exam or dropping the kids off at the next extracurricular activity, God doesn't seem to make that much difference. He doesn't seem to change the way we live that much, really, in those moments. And I wonder that perhaps it's because our view of God is far too small. Is God a side issue for you that you bring out when it's convenient? Or if you're not a Christian here today, and we're we're so glad that you're here joining us today to hear from God's Word and to know more about God. If you're not a Christian here today and you're learning, I wonder what your view of God is. Who is God to you? The answer to this question really matters. And in this new teaching series, friends, from the book of Isaiah, we are going to behold our God, behold our God. Our aim from this book, this massive book, you heard the reading from Ray, even chapter one is so packed with huge truths that we need to grasp with. Our aim from this book is that you'll behold our God and that you don't just see God and a small picture of God, but that you will be captivated by who God is, that you'll be left in awe of who God is. Because I'm convinced if you see God rightly, then your life can never be the same again. Your life will be transformed. So friends, are you ready to behold our God? Let's get stuck into the book of Isaiah. Have a look at Isaiah 1, verse 1 with me. Keep your Bibles open, friends. Keep your Bibles open, all right? And before we start, I'm, 
you know what, I'm going to give this to God because this is a huge book. We need his help with this. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please help us today by your Holy Spirit. Reveal to us what you would have us to see and help us to walk away in awe of you, refreshed and renewed at a big vision of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, keep your Bibles open yet. We need to keep digging into the Scriptures today. So, Isaiah 1, verse 1, read this with me. Now, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, there's a few things we need to grasp with the, to just orientate ourselves with the book of Isaiah. Firstly, uh, this is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's the audience there but it also comes in a specific historical context. So have a look at the screen here. There's a lot on here, but what I want you to just note is Isaiah's time of prophecy is between 740, uh, around that period of 740 and 701 BC, okay? And there's the reigns of those kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. At this point in time, you can see there's two kingdoms. Uh, Previously, there was only one kingdom under King David and King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel as a whole, that's been split into two now. There's a northern kingdom of Israel, there's a southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is, the capital. So you'll see the southern kingdom kings there, northern kingdom kings on the other side. Uh, Just to give you an idea, here's a map of the region. You'll see Judah down the bottom, you'll see Israel up the top, and two other big nations that we need to get into our heads to understand Isaiah as the kingdoms of Assyria, you can see which was the big superpower in the time of the writing of the book of Isaiah. And we see Babylon, who will come up later on as the next big superpower after Assyria. So we see Assyria and Babylon as two big players as well that we need to understand. Uh, two foreign nations that God, you'll actually see, will use to judge Judah and Israel for their sin. Right? So if we go back to the timeline, <coughs> we'll see that the northern kingdom is actually destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC because of their sin. And the southern kingdom is actually conquered down in 597 BC by Babylon. And the book of Isaiah concerns these events of judgment because they're actually part of God's plan. There's something we need to grapple with later on. Now, that gives us a bit of a historical setting. We need to understand this is not a book that is just made up and just happens somewhere. It, it comes in a real historical context. This is what's going on. Uh, the structure of the book, let me give you a brief structure of the book. Um, oh, it's not very clear. Apologies for that. Hopefully, you can see that. Um, but the book is essentially split into two halves, the first half of the book, the second half of the book. And there's some big movements, three big movements I want you to grasp. The first is Assyria to Babylon. So the first half of the book deals with the nation of Assyria and the judgment coming with Assyria. The second half of the book deals with Babylon, which is actually not happening at the time of Isaiah, but he's predicting that going forward. Isaiah's writing at the time of the Assyrian invasions and things happening, but he's going to write in the second half of the book about what's going to come with Babylon. That's the first movement to note. The second movement, judgment to salvation. Judgment to salvation. So the first half of the book primarily concerns judgment, God's judgment on his people for their sin. The second half brings a big message of salvation and hope, right? That's really broad. You'll see those things popping up throughout the book, but that's a broad structure. 
And the third movement is Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. We'll see that the book of Isaiah will start with a concern for historical Jerusalem and their sin and there's judgment on what they have done. But as Isaiah prophesies, you'll see he starts to build a really big picture of something called the new Jerusalem. And we'll see that it's actually tied up not just with the um, restoration of this city, but of a new Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, a new creation, a new heavens and earth. We're talking about restoration on a huge scale that transcends history at that very moment. And that's a big movement that we'll see being built throughout the book of Isaiah. All of this is to say that Isaiah is a big prophecy, a big prophecy. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet bringing God's word. It's a huge vision from him. And it all starts here in chapter 1. Because as we deal with chapter 1, we'll actually see that Isaiah 1 is a snapshot of the whole book as a whole. It'll keep moving from tracing through all these themes, actually. It's all in chapter 1. So it sort of sums it up. So it's a great place to start, okay? Now, hopefully that giving you somewhere to orientate yourself with. We'll get stuck straight in. And the first point is this. Feel the weight of sin. Feel the weight of sin. Have a look at verse 2 with me. Hear, O heavens. Listen, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Isaiah starts by saying this. Listen up. Hear this message. This message is important. These are the words of God. And we are called to enter the heavenly courtroom where God's people are put on trial. And it's not good news. Listen to God's declaration. Have a look. Keep reading verse 2 with me. Keep reading verse 2. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's owner's, uh, manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Our sinful nation, people loaded with guilt, a, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Here is a picture of God and His people and is a picture of a father and his children. The role of a parent is to nurture, provide for, bring up their children. This is what God has done. And the children, they're to willingly obey and trust and love their parents in response to what their parents have done for them in response of the love of their parents. But here's the problem. God's cherished children, Israel, have rebelled against God. This is the God who has taken them out of slavery to Egypt. They were slaves, literally, with no hope at all. God has come and redeemed them and rescued them, promised them every good thing, the promised land. You know, everything is there for them, every blessing they could ever want. And what do Israel do? It says in the text, what do they do? Uh, that they rebelled against their father. They have turned their backs on him. They've rebelled against their father. They have turned their backs on him. Imagine this. Imagine you walk up to your father or mother and you spit in their face. And then you turn your backs on them and walk out the door never to return again. How incredibly offensive would that action be? How dishonoring would that action be? How shameful and dishonoring 
how unappreciative, how un how you can't even fathom doing something. Imagine if your if your child did that to you, how would you feel? Even when you think about it, even just turning your back on someone is incredibly offensive, isn't it? If you're talking to me and I did this, how would you feel? At least I'm still engaging with you now. Imagine if I just walked out the door and didn't say anything at all whilst you're trying to have a conversation with me. It's rude. But this is God we're speaking about. It's more than just rude. It's disrespectful. It's dishonoring. It's incredibly offensive. And Israel has not just turned their backs to God. They've, what else have they done? They've forsaken him. They've walked out the door. They've forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Do you know what the word spurn means? It, it means to despise. Despise. Like rebellious, ungrateful, spoiled children, Israel have spat in God's face and abandoned Him. And what makes this so serious is it comes back to who God is. Who is He? He's the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. Friends, this isn't just some random guy on the street that you're walking by. This is the transcendent God of the entire universe. This is the God who has made all things and give, gives breath and life to all things. He is being treated like trash. This is the one who deserves all glory, honor, and power. But it who isn't being treated as he deserves. Which means, when you think about the offense, the shame, the dishonor caused by this rebellion is more serious than you can ever imagine. There are severe consequences to this, and we'll see this later on. What, what's being given here, friends, is a picture of sin. If you've ever wondered what sin is, you hear that word around church, this is a picture of sin here. Um, sin, let me tell you something, sin is not simply little naughty things that you do, little naughty indulgent things like you do. You know how the world thinks about sin? This is how the world thinks about sin, like this. They think, oh, do something sinful, indulge in something you're not supposed to, have an ice cream. That's a, this is literally a series of ice creams based on different sin. That's how the world thinks about sin. But do you know what sin actually is? Sin is rebellion against the holy God of the universe. Sin is rebellion against the holy God of the universe, which means it's serious. Friends, what we need to feel here is the weight of sin. This is what, personally, I've been convicted of as I've engaged with this passage, that this is what, I, I think this is what God wants to see, the weight of sin. I want you to think about that, what sin actually is. Think about it. When, when you're staying up late at night and you're watching that video that you know you shouldn't be watching because it's putting, in, it's lustful and it's not right, when you're, when you lose your temper and you rage at your kids, when you, when, if you're a teenager here, maybe, and you just rebel against your parents and you disobey them, when, you're, when, you're, when you look at what other people have and you're, um, you just keep wishing, oh, I wish I had that, I just wish I really want that, you know, then I'd be happy. When you keep pursuing more and more money, more and more wealth, by taking, uh, working longer hours and aiming for that promotion and everything else becomes like it doesn't matter. 
When, when you're discontent with what you have and you're just wishing for more and more, when you, all your time and energy is put into things that don't matter, when you spend your whole day gaming and you haven't touched your Bible, when, when you're proud and you think you don't need God, all these, whatever it is, big or small, this is sin and that means it's serious. They're not little things, even if they seem harmless. Why? Because sin is rebellion against the holy God of the universe. We need to feel primarily here, first, firstly, the weight of Israel's sin. You need to feel that. But then I want you to feel the weight of your sin. Because we're not so much different from Israel, are we? God has given us everything we could ever want or need. He has every good promise for us. Every, every, everything we need. Satisfaction, contentment, hope, salvation. We have it all. <clears throat> but what have we done? <clears throat> Excuse me. We've turned away from God. When we choose to follow our selfish desires, when we don't do what he wants, but we do what we want, you know what it's doing? It's, turn, it's saying to God, I don't need you, God. I don't want you, God. Stay out of my life. I'll rule myself. I don't need a God. Every sin and the sinful heart that drives it, it's, it's forsaking God. It's despising God. It's turning your back on God. This isn't a feel-good passage, or not yet anyway. You need to feel the weight of sin. You're despising the one who is your loving father who has given everything for you. You're despising and forsaking the one who is holy, holy, holy. Our Lord God Almighty, he deserves obedience. Let me tell you something. If if you realize who you are sinning against, you will feel the weight of sin. This is God we are talking about. Who it is matters. For example, insulting a stranger on the street and insulting your own father. They're two very different things. Both are wrong, but there is one that is much more serious. Who it is matters. And friends, let me start by confessing to you something myself. I think so often I treat sin like it's nothing. Um, I don't know about you, but if I fall into sin, often what happens is that I say a quick sorry, sorry God for my sin, and then I literally move on with life. Because I know, you know, he'll forgive me, it's fine, it's no big deal, they're just a small thing. No one else knows about it. It hasn't harmed anyone. So, quick sorry, move on. And as I've been reading this passage, I've realized that it's because I, I treat sin like a small thing because I have a small view of God. So often, I don't see him for who he actually is. My loving father who has given everything for me and the one who is holy, 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 deserving of all glory and honor and power. I don't know if anyone else feels like that about sin sometimes, that you're treating it too small. We need a big view of God 
which will lead to a serious view of sin. And as we continue with our text, we'll see more about how God feels about this rebellion. When worship goes wrong, Isaiah 1, 10 to 17. For Israel, um, what actually had happened was that God had outlined certain ways to express worship to him. A large part of this were animal sacrifices given up as burnt offerings. This was supposed to be pleasing to God. But hear what God says. Have a look at verse 11 with me. Look at verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? God is not pleased. God is not pleased with Israel. And he goes on, um, stop in verse 3. He goes on in verse 3. Oh, sorry, 13. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbath, and, and con- convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. You see, all the religious ceremonies, the holy days, the Sabbath, the new moon feast, to God, they're worthless. All these ceremonies that Israel are going through, they aren't pleasing. In fact, it says he hates them. This is strong language. And it gets worse. Verse 15, listen to this. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Do you see how serious this is? Because Israel has turned their back on God. God has turned his back on them. Even their prayers, he's not listening anymore. You can pray all you want. I'm not listening. That's what God is saying. Because sin, it causes a break in relationship. And for Israel, there is a specific sin that is being called out. Verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your, your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You see, the core issue was that the nation of Israel did not live out justice. This was the core sin that's being dealt with particularly here. They were neglecting the needy, oppressed people. There was, you know, think about it. There's no Centrelink back then. If you're a father, if, if you don't have a father, or if you're a widow, you don't have a husband to provide for you in those days, it meant you had no means to live, no one to provide for you. You were poor, which means you weren't only physically needy, it meant you were socially outcast, you were mistreated, you were looked down upon. And part of God's people, being part of being part of God's people was that you, you had to take care of those people. You know, there shouldn't be people that are left oppressed and poor and, un, and needy within God's people. You had to defend the oppressed. You had to plead the case of the widow. You had to seek justice. This was God's desire because this is at the heart of who God is. He's already shown this clearly to his own people by saving them when they were most oppressed when they were slaves, when they were needy. And they were called to reflect this heart of justice in their community. But they were failing, failing miserably, and this is serious. No amount of showy religion could fix the fact that God's people had rotten hearts that did not love. 
So all their so-called worship was empty. It was meaningless. You can sacrifice as many animals as you want, Israel. You can go through as many ceremonies as you want. They mean nothing because your heart is in the wrong place. Friends, what God wants is for all of our lives to be given as a living sacrifice, including our hearts. Romans 12, Romans 12 tells us this clearly. This is what is pleasing to God, not burnt offerings. All of us here today need to get this. We need to understand this. Think about this. Worship can't just be what you do here on a Sunday. Worship is whether you will obey God on Monday. Let me say that again. Worship can't be just what you do here on a Sunday. Worship is whether you obey God on Monday. I've been mean, thinking about worship a lot recently, and this passage has really hit this on the head, hasn't it? It's not about all the different things you do. It's about your heart. It's about your obedience. And friends, perhaps you're going through the motions of religion right now. Perhaps you're coming to church, you're singing, you're serving, but your life does not embody a heart that loves God and loves others. And God says, if you don't have that, then everything else is worthless. Worthless. Friends, are you falling into the sin of empty worship? Because if you are, this is serious. God says he hates this. He hates it. And let me take a moment here to also speak about the issue of justice. Yeah, about social justice. I know social justice is a loaded term, but what I mean here is um, helping the oppressed and needy. Um, as evangelicals who value the gospel above all, sometimes we can really forget about this area. Uh, sometimes we intentionally forego this area in fear that we may go down the route of some liberal Christians, uh, which all they've done is they've essentially turned into charities and they, all they do is help poor people. And Jesus, they never mention Jesus at all. They've completely missed the, uh, what being a Christian is all about and what God's word's about. Uh, sometimes we, we push away from that, so we try to avoid that. Yeah? Uh, but sometimes we just forget about it as well. Because let's be honest, we're rich. And we don't really need to think about poor people because they're not around in our lives normally or needy people. But friends, I want you to see here, we need to care for those in need. We need to fight for the oppressed. We need to seek justice. It's, see, the thing is, it's not just, it's not gospel or social justice. It's gospel and social justice. We need to see that. Historically, Christians have been at the forefront of justice movements in helping the oppressed. Yeah, did you know that? Yeah, it's, it's part of the Christian ethic and who God wants us to be. Because this is the character of our God. This is who God is. And as his people, we are called to reflect that. I know it's hard to know where to start with this. Let me give you a place to start, and this is by no means the entirety of what we're called to do, but just a first step. One of our partner organizations is International Justice Mission. Um, they work to free people from modern-day slavery. There's still millions of people around the world in modern-day slavery. 
I don't know if you know that, yeah? in countries all around the world. Um, here's one step you can take. I want you to go to this website, subscribe to their updates, learn about their needs. Just raising our awareness, understanding the injustice that goes on in the world, that's huge. Learn of the needs, don't stop there. Then start praying for change. Start praying for change. And if you're able, give financially. They need help. Once again, I've just told you a bunch of things to do, but remember it's about your heart. So maybe really the place to start is praying for a heart that cares for those in need. And here's some steps that will help you take the next steps after that. This can't be all we do, but we need to start somewhere, friends, because justice matters to God. Justice matters to God. As we come back to our text, we've seen a picture building of terrible sin and injustice in Israel. God's declaring his, ang- his just anger at their rebellion. It seems the verdict is clear, but just when judgment is expected, grace intervenes. Have a look at verses 18 to 20 with me. Have a look at verses. These verses are so good. You've got to look at these verses. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Yeah, when you, it just should be judgment. You know what happens? God offers Gracious salvation, an offer of total pardon, a wiping away of all Israel's sin, a blank slate. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Here we see God generously giving Israel what they tried in vain to get through all their showy religion and sacrifices. He offers them forgiveness. If they repent, if they stop turning their backs to God and they just would turn to him and just ask for forgiveness. He's ready to forgive with open arms. Let me ask you a question here. What did Israel do to deserve this gift? What did they do? Let me give you a quick recap. Um, They've rebelled against God. They've turned their backs on God. They've forsaken God. They've despised God. They've spurned God. Let me ask you again. What did they do to deserve forgiveness? Absolutely nothing. And that's the point. In the midst of rebellion and sin, we see amazing grace. Grace, an undeserved gift, undeserved forgiveness. What Israel has done is incredibly offensive. But God gives them grace. This is who our God is. Are you seeing a bigger picture of God today? We'll see this throughout the book of Isaiah over and over again. Terrible sin, but the hope of undeserved forgiveness and salvation in the midst of it all. The offer is there, but there's also the flip side. There's also the flip side. If you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a reminder, the Lord is gracious, but he is not to be taken lightly. There is a choice. How Israel responds matters. And unfortunately, as we go on, Israel doesn't seem to respond the way that they should. They do not repent. The offer is there, but they don't take it. 
So we see salvation the hard way, verses 21 to 32. Um, Verses 21 to 23 outlines more sin. Israel's called a prostitute even, this harsh language because of her unfaithfulness. And judgment is declared. Have a look at verse 24 with me. Verse 24 in your Bibles. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Fierce judgment is coming. Fierce judgment is coming. And we see this play out later on in God using the nations of Assyria and Babylon to come in and actually punish the nation. Rightfully so, because we've seen their sins have been atrocious. But once again, there's something unexpected. Um, Verse 25 again, have a look at verse 25. Something unexpected is here. I'll turn my hand against you. I'll thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I'll restore the judges as in days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. This judgment, it should be complete annihilation. It should be destruction because of the terrible sin that Israel has done. But what is God going to do instead? He he will use this judgment for their purification. I'll turn my hand against you and I'll thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. And friends, we see that even in judgment, the Lord remembers mercy. Even in judgment, the Lord remembers mercy. The image here is of crude ore and pure metals being passed through the furnace and emerging as pure, refined metal. It is through the fires of judgment that the faithless city will be called the faithful city once again. Here's hints of a new Jerusalem. Not everyone will make it. It's purification. Some will be destroyed, but the repentant, faithful remnant will be saved through this judgment. It seems odd, but salvation will come through judgment. We'll see more of this theme as the book continues. But just note something for now. God never bypasses his justice to save. It says this, Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. You see, God doesn't just look at sin and say, don't worry about it, guys. I love you. I'll forgive you. No worries. Come on. Come on. Doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. No good judge would do that. Even in the secular world, you'd say that. There needs to be judgment. There needs to be consequences for the offenses. And we see that in the cross. The cross is where God's justice and mercy meet. Where judgment and salvation meet. Did, did you see that theme we had before? Salvation needs to come through judgment for Israel. But that's the same for us as well. Judgment doesn't disappear. God's judgment is poured out on Jesus for us. And there we see incredible mercy as Jesus takes on the punishment that we deserve. He steps into our place and dies so we don't have to. And it's only through that judgment that salvation can come to us. Friends, the cross is where God's justice and mercy meet. 
And the implications are far bigger than Judah under attack from Assyria in the 8th century. It changes everything for us right now. It's time to wake up. Here's our final point. Why does this matter? Why does this all matter? Isaiah isn't here to just give us a history lesson, friends. It's here to give us a wake-up call, a wake-up call. I don't know if you set an alarm in the morning. Uh, Leeching normally sets an alarm on her phone in the morning, and then when it goes off, I can't remember what time it is, sometime. It goes off in the morning sometimes if the kids haven't woken us up yet. Normally one of two things happens when the alarm goes off. Um, uh, it's on the leeching side of the bed, so she normally rolls over and presses the snooze button. That might happen quite a few times. Or literally, we're so tired that we just ignore it and it just keeps ringing and we're like, stuff it. We're just like, yes, we are a bit lazy sometimes as well. Yeah? And don't tell me you haven't done that before. Yeah? Normally, that's, that's what happens. Um, but the purpose of an alarm is that it's supposed to make you respond, isn't it? It's supposed to make you respond. There's supposed to be some sort of response to this wake-up call. You choose to ignore it, or you can take action. And here in Isaiah, we see God's wake-up call. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Hear God. Hear what God has to say. Listen up, friends. This is serious. This is serious. We are all sinners destined for judgment and destruction. And I'm saying this because I care about us all. I care about you all here. You need to know this. We've all turned our backs on God. We all don't live with him as our God. We put ourselves on the throne, which means we deserve nothing less but hell. Separation from God. That's what we wanted anyway, isn't it? That's what sin is. But God has graciously given us an offer. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There is an offer for you. There's an offer for me. There's an offer here for the whole world of gracious forgiveness and mercy and salvation. An offer that isn't based on our goodness or our religion, but based on the death of Jesus Christ on that cross alone, the one who took our judgment to win us our salvation. And the wake-up call today is this. How will you respond Will you turn to Jesus and trust in him and have salvation? Or will you keep turning away from him and face judgment? Friends, you need to respond. This is the wake-up call. Your response means eternal implications. If you're not a Christian here today, it's so good that you're here with us today. I really urge you to take this seriously. Uh, we hope... My hope, and maybe a little challenge for you, by the end of this series in the book of Isaiah, I want you to commit to making a response, to actually deciding, you know, am I with God or am I against God, based on what he's showing me here? Because your response matters. Your response matters. And we'll love nothing more than to see you know God, to come into his family. That's what we're on about here at CP Church. I'm not ashamed of that to say that we want to see you become a Christian. That's what we're here for, because we believe there's nothing more important than this. This is eternal salvation on the line. And the alternative is more horrible than we want to think about. We hope you can see and accept God's amazing gift of salvation for you. For those of us today who are here, and we are Christian, I hope 
today has been a wake-up call about your sin. I hope today will feel that you've, you've felt the weight of sin afresh, that as you go about your life, that your casual approach to sin that you have, that we can kill that, we can get rid of that. And instead, we will humble ourselves again before God and say, God, you are holy, holy, holy. You are the God who has given everything for us, everything. How can we treat you in a way which dishonors you? I hope today has been a wake-up call to be broken anew about your sin. But then as you do that, remember, you will see God's grace so much more because it's only when you understand the depths of your sin that you will truly comprehend the heights of the grace that God has shown you. What gracious salvation he has for you. Friends, do you need to repent today? I know that I do. Because repentance is every single day. It's not a one-time event. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ's forgiveness is every day of our lives too. And we're going to respond now in a different way. What we're going to do as we finish our message today is we're going to actually take a minute to reflect privately bring your sins before God and then we're going to pray a prayer of confession together and then we're going to take communion together to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. Communion is a meal where we, uh, for Christians who, as we remember what God has done for us. If you haven't received your communion elements as you walk in through the door and you do trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, I'd invite you to put up your hand. The host team can come and give you a cup and a bread. If you're not yet a believer, then um, just please, you know, just reflect on what we're doing here and the significance of this as we partake in communion. But for everyone, please take a minute now and reflect. Are there sins you need to confess and bring to God? Pray this prayer of confession together. It's up on the screen. Together. Most merciful God, we humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your ways. We have done wrong and we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. Have mercy on us. Wipe out our sins and teach us the fear of others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit that we may live as disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let me pray. Most merciful Lord, we thank you that as we bring our confessions to you, it isn't in a vain hope that maybe you'll forgive us, maybe if we're good enough that you'll, you'll, you'll hear that prayer, but that we have forgiveness in Christ. Your love compels us to come in. Our hands were unclean. Our hearts were unprepared. We were not even fit to eat the crumbs from under your table. But you, Lord, are the God of our salvation. 
you share your bread with sinners. So cleanse us and feed us with the precious body and blood of your son, that he may live in us and we in him, and that we with the whole company of Christ may sit and eat in your kingdom. Amen. Friends, remember this. Your sin is serious, but God's grace is even greater. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Forgiveness comes to you not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because he loves you. He wants you to come into the kingdom with him and join the heavenly family of all the believers. This new status you have as God's beloved children, forgiven, restored, it's costly. It cost Jesus his very life. He gave it for us to gain us forgiveness and new life. And this is what we celebrate as we eat this meal together. Friends, as we have taken this meal, let us remember Christ's body broken for, for us. Let us remember his blood spilt for us. Let us remember his incredible sacrifice and love shown to us who are unworthy. Let us praise and give thanks to the one who has cleansed us of our sin. Friends, we're going to take the bread first, then we're going to drink the juice together. We're going to reflect on Christ's death, his body broken, his blood shed for us. And as you taste and feel the bread, it's a tangible expression of the gospel here, friends. Reflect on what Christ has done and give thanks. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread in his hands. He gave God thanks and broke it. Then he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread together. In the same way, after the meal, Jesus took the cup in his hands. He gave God thanks. Then he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us drink the cup together. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for assuring us of your goodness and love. Thank you for assuring us that we are members of Christ's body. Renew us by your Holy Spirit. Unite us in the body of your Son and bring us with all your people into the joy of your eternal kingdom. We pray this thanking you that even though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. We pray all of these things through his name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Iggy, for uh, reminding us how big sin is and how bigger God's grace is. Well, um, it's time for some announcements, um, and here are some ways we can connect with 